Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So of our three episodes on segregation that we're doing this month, this is the one that's probably the most familiar to the most people. Uh, Sometimes when we do things that are immediately familiar to folks, people feel like we've wasted their time somehow. But talking about Brown versus Board of Education without talking about the aftermath of it would be seriously incomplete. So even though a lot of this is going to be familiar to some people from classes on American history or the American Civil Rights Movement, it really is necessary to talk about this part of Brown versus Board of Education also. So our last installment on this ended after Brown versus Board's arguments and re-arguments. The case returned to the Supreme Court for some direction on how to implement the previous decision. And Chief Justice Earl Warren urged school systems to end segregation, quote, with all deliberate speed. So states and school boards had to find a way for the children who were attending segregated schools, which at this point was almost 40 percent of the school children in the United States to attend integrated ones instead. But that second decision, which came to be known as Brown 2, was really, really just the beginning of the struggle to end school segregation. It was a battle that was fought all over the United States, not just in the South. And it went on well, well after what we think of as the end of the civil rights movement. And uh, just as a couple of caveats from the beginning, there are things that happened during this period that we are not going to talk about because this is basically 30 years of history that we're trying to fit into one episode. Uh, we also definitely know that segregation laws targeted populations besides just African-Americans, but that's really the context of what we're talking about today. So there, there were laws that segregated Mexican children and Japanese children and Chinese children, but... We're really talking about the ones that segregated black children today. So here's how the opinion of the Supreme Court in Brown 2, which was issued on May 31st of 1955, began. The Delaware case that's cited as an exception uh, involved a lower court ruling against segregation. Just a heads up there. Racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional, and all provisions of federal, state, or local law requiring or permitting such discrimination must yield to this principle. The judgments below, except that in the Delaware case, are reversed, and the cases are remanded to the district courts to take such proceedings and enter such orders and decrees consistent with this opinion, as are necessary and proper to admit the parties to these cases to public schools on a racially non-discriminatory basis with all deliberate speed. School authorities have the primary responsibility for elucidating, assessing, and solving the varied school local school problems which may require solution and fully implementing the governing constitutional principles. Courts will have to consider whether the action of school authorities constitutes good faith implementation of the governing constitutional principles. Later on, Chief Justice Earl Warren talked about using the phrase with all deliberate speed rather than something more immediate like forthwith, because there were some very, very real obstacles to schools integrating. From a practical standpoint, they had to consider how would school systems redistrict and how would they make sure that these new districts were integrated? And what would they do if faculty or staff positions turned out to be redundant? And what if gaps appeared that meant systems needed to hire more people? 
On top of that, the court couldn't take it for granted that school systems would operate in good faith when it came to integration. So integration plans had to be court approved, and that was, of course, going to be a time-consuming process. There was also the fact that a lot of the schools that black students had been attending were frankly not fit to be used. So, for example, in Prince Edward County, Virginia, which was where one of the Brown versus Board cases had originated, the school for black students had no restrooms at all. And it was so overcrowded that some students were attending classes in literal shacks outside of the building, as well as an old school bus. So school systems were having to figure out how to have enough space for people in facilities that actually were fit to be used. So needless to say, integration was definitely not as simple as flipping a switch and saying, "Okay, everyone goes to the same school now. But this idea of deliberate speed also meant that there wasn't really a timeline to follow and there wasn't a deadline for integration. And that gave white communities that did not want to integrate a whole lot of leeway and time to kind of dig in their heels. We are going to talk about how they dug in their heels after a brief word from a sponsor. So as schools started integrating, there were definitely school systems that once they were ordered to do so by the Supreme Court integrated And they did so without a lot of overt incident. And to be clear, without a lot of overt incident kind of means that there were not massively violent protests on the school grounds. It was pretty much standard that the black students who started attending majority white schools routinely faced discrimination, harassment and violence. And not just from their peers, but also from parents and other adults. Uh, the same level of harassment was true for leaders in those school systems who had worked toward integration. They faced the same kind of backlash from the greater community. But in many places, resistance to Brown versus Board was direct and overt. White parents picketed and protested. Others pulled their children out of school rather than having them go to an integrated school. Politicians built their campaigns around maintaining segregation. George Wallace of Alabama famously arranged his gubernatorial race around keeping schools segregated. And in his inaugural address announced, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Various state governments tried to argue that the states had the right to protect its citizens from unconstitutional actions on the part of the federal government. And part of this argument was the idea that in spite of the Supreme Court's ruling, Brown versus Board was, in fact, unconstitutional. Some school systems found ways to keep up the appearance of integrating while simultaneously maintaining segregated schools. They made virtually unpassable exams that black students had to pass before transferring. We've seen things like this happen before in our civil rights discussion. Uh, Or they allowed parents to choose which school their children would attend, banking on the idea that white parents would keep their children in white schools, which were generally better, while black parents would keep their children in the schools that were intended for black children simply because they were afraid of retaliation. School officials presented clearly unworkable integration plans to the courts, knowing that the courts would reject these plans and that they would have to start all over, maintaining the segregation while they were coming up with a new plan. The NAACP wound up having to argue court cases all over the country. And while the Supreme Court had remanded cases back to lower courts, these courts did not always work in the spirit of the Supreme Court's ruling. So when Briggs versus Elliott, which was one of the five Brown versus Board cases, 
came back up in a lower court. The judge found that the Supreme Court had outlawed segregation, but it had not mandated integration. And this kind of underhanded pushback from the lower courts was really widespread, and it went on for years. In another segregation case, a federal district court for the Southern District of Georgia found that its jurisdiction was outside of Brown versus Ford's jurisdiction, and that was in 1963, almost a decade after the thing had come out in the first place. At the federal level, 19 senators and 77 House members issued, quote, the Southern Manifesto, which was read into the congressional record on March 12th of 1956. The Southern Manifesto condemned the Supreme Court's decision on Brown versus Board, and it read in part, The original Constitution does not mention education. Neither does the 14th Amendment nor any other amendment. The debates preceding the submission of the 14th Amendment clearly show that there was no intent that it should affect the systems of education maintained by the states. The very Congress which proposed the amendment subsequently provided for segregated schools in the District of Columbia. The Southern Manifesto also included themes that became really common in the greater context of the civil rights movement. Another quote from it is, quote, Without regard to the consent of the governed, outside agitators are threatening immediate and revolutionary changes in our public school systems. If done, this is certain to destroy the system of public education in some of the states. In 1957, one of the most famous moments of the backlash against school integration took place in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Little Rock School Board had announced its intent to comply with Brown v. Board on May 20th of 1954 and a federal court had approved its plan to do so about a year later. It was a phased integration plan with full integration to be completed by 1963. In September of 1957, nine black students were set to enroll in Central High School in Little Rock. But the governor, Orville Falbus, sent in Arkansas National Guard troops to keep them from doing so. The school board asked the court for a delay in integrating the school, and the court refused. And this led to a battle with the governor and the Arkansas National Guard on one side and the federal court on the other. When the students finally entered the school on September the 23rd, it was through an angry mob of white protesters. And then a riot broke out that sent the students back home again. President Eisenhower deployed federal troops to try to restore order and to protect the students. All of this played out on national television, much like when the government had sent in troops to protect newly freed slaves and ensure that they were granted the right to vote after the Civil War. This federal intervention further stoked tensions in the South. The governor's actions in this case also became part of a whole other Supreme Court case, Cooper versus Aaron, which upheld Brown versus Board and condemned the governor's actions. And this example is really just one of many high-profile examples during the the journey of integrating schools. Um, it happened at public schools and colleges all over the South, with troops having to escort black students into previously all-white schools. By 1960, so at this point five years after Brown II, the outlook was bleak. In spite of new laws, federal orders, and the presence of troops, Schools in many places were still segregated, and black children, their families, and white supporters were facing everything from harassment to violence on a day-to-day basis. 
There were protests all over the place, but very little actual integration was being done in the school systems that had resisted so far. The Supreme Court became increasingly direct in its instructions that school systems integrate. In Prince Edward County, Virginia, was back in front of the the court again in 1964, having closed its schools entirely rather than integrate them. The court ordered the county to reopen its schools, and Justice Hugo Black said, quote, there has been entirely too much deliberation and not enough speed. Still more segregation cases got all the way to the Supreme Court in the late 1960s, with the court reiterating over and over that schools had to integrate because black children had a constitutional right to the same education as white children. And finally, and in the later 1960s, there was gradual progress, and it ran alongside many of the other key moments in the civil rights movement. But progress was extremely slow. And many school systems found that as white families had moved away from neighborhoods where black people lived in a migration known as white flight, logical school district lines yielded schools that were still segregated. And this led to the advent of busing. In 1971, the Supreme Court heard the case of Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education on the subject of busing. Charlotte City Schools, which overwhelmingly had black students, had merged with Mecklenburg County students and the students in Mecklenburg County were more predominantly white. The school system proposed several plans to integrate these schools, but most of them still wound up with many black students still in majority black schools. So in the end, the solution that they came up with was to bus students from majority black neighborhoods to the white schools. There was really a lot more going on with the Supreme Court ruling, but in short, the Supreme Court upheld busing for the purposes of school integration. Also part of this ruling was the idea that any school that was overwhelmingly one race was suspect, not just schools where segregation had been required by specific law. This and other court cases meant that suddenly schools in the North, which had not specifically passed laws requiring segregated schools, but were operating in a de facto segregated state, now had to integrate as well. So I think that the the integration struggles in the South get the most attention in a lot of civil rights classes. But then when you get into school systems needing, school systems outside of the South needing to integrate through busing, there was some really similar, similar looking protests that broke out that gets a lot less attention As an example, uh, in Boston, busing led to a full-scale crisis in 1974. The court had ordered that the schools be integrated through busing, and all across the city, black students were harassed, spit on, and threatened as they rode the bus to school. And this was kind of another phased integration program, so this went on for a long time. Uh, white students started boycotting schools, and white families who could afford to moved out of Boston into suburbs that were more predominantly white. Finally, the Supreme Court heard a Detroit busing case called Milliken versus Bradley. Detroit's urban center was overwhelmingly black, and its suburbs, which were a separate school system, tended to be overwhelmingly white. In order to maintain integration, students would have had to be bused from one school system to another. In a five to four decision, the court ruled that busing children across municipal lines 
when those lines had not been specifically created to enforce segregation in the first place, was, quote, wholly impermissible and outside the bounds of what Brown versus Board had intended in, as far as integration. And so this dismantled busing efforts in some of the most segregated cities in the United States because the only way to create a school that was integrated was to literally move students from one community into a completely different community to go to school. Thurgood Marshall, who we talked about in our previous episode, had at this point become the first African-American Supreme Court justice in the United States. In his dissenting opinion, he said, quote, Our nation, I fear, will be ill-served by the court's refusal to remedy separate and unequal education. For unless our children begin to learn together, there is little hope that our people will ever learn to live together. The practice of busing did continue. I know that there was busing in my school system that I grew up in to sort of fine tune the balance uh, of, of racial mix in one school and the other. But it didn't continue in the more extreme way that had been proposed in Detroit. So consequently, in a lot of places, as white families kept moving into more predominantly white suburbs, schools slid back into being more and more segregated as a result. And in a lot of ways, integration remains a struggle in the United States. As neighborhoods become overwhelmingly one race or another, the same thing happens to the schools. So there are school systems all over the U.S. in which maintaining integration would involve busing children long distances from different school systems altogether. As a as a side note, I was at Fernbank, which is a, a science museum in Atlanta one time, uh, and it was during the week because I had the day off, and a class of students came in to the to the IMAX theater to mm-hmm. watch an IMAX movie. And it was a 100% uh, black class. And the teachers were also black. And I looked at the person next to me and I was like, is there segregation still in Atlanta? I Like, I was completely floored by this because the where I grew up was not as nearly as large as Metro Atlanta is. So the neighborhoods were not, like, large enough to yield an entire school that was largely segregated. Ah. Uh this was like a wake-up call for me as a total grown human being uh, that there are still schools that are effectively as segregated as they were in the 50s because of how neighborhood lines run, mm-hmm. uh, which is contributed to by all kinds of other socioeconomic factors. Yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of um, like you said, a lot of factors in the mix. And it is a little bit startling when you see that uh, for the first time. Well, and similarly startling is that even in schools that aren't overwhelmingly one race or another, a lot of classrooms become effectively segregated because African-American students are disproportionately represented in lower level classes and upper level classes often are overwhelmingly full of white students. And this, again, is because of a number of socioeconomic factors. Uh, and that is definitely what I saw in my own public school uh, experience also which, you know, ran from the mid-80s until the early 90s. Yeah, and there are also some both implicit and explicit discrimination elements happening there that create that sort of classroom-level segregation. It's it's a very complex web to try to unravel, and you can't point to any one specific thing, but they are all factoring in and contributing. What is not the cause, and I want to say this clearly, is an inherent lack of worth in anyone who's attending school. And as as uh, as we think about that for a second, let's take another brief moment for a word from a sponsor. 
So to return to Brown versus Board and kind of circle back around to where we started, specifically in terms of the schools that yielded those first five cases that went before the Supreme Court, here is what happened. Uh, in Topeka, Kansas, which was where Brown versus Board started, the desegregation process did start in 1955. But in 1979, one of the original attorneys, Charles Scott Jr., sued to have the original case reopened because the pattern of segregation, as we just talked about before the break, had re-emerged in a lot of the schools. In Somerton, in Clarendon County, South Carolina, which was uh, the focus of the Briggs versus Elliott case, schools were integrated in 1965. Uh, in Prince Edward County, Virginia, which was where Davis versus the county school board of Prince Edward County uh, started, as we alluded to earlier, that school system closed its schools entirely from 1959 until 1964 rather than integrate. Overwhelmingly, this meant that black students in that school system had no way to receive an education. But on the other hand, many white students wound up attending private schools thanks to donations from segregationists in other parts of the South. The state of Delaware, which is where Gebhardt et al. versus Belton et al. and Gebhardt versus Beulah had taken place, had actually begun desegregating schools in 1952. However, as white families moved into exclusively white communities, a pattern of segregation reemerged, leading to a federal court-ordered busing program in 1976. Another case, which was part of all this, but which we haven't talked about so far, was Bowling versus Sharp. And that was a case that started in the District of Columbia, and it made its way all the way to, to the Supreme Court separately from Brown versus Board and before Brown versus Board. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously in 1952 that segregation denied black students in the District of Columbia due process. And that's a right that's guaranteed under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, even though it had already been decided before Brown versus Board first reached the Supreme Court, Bowling versus Sharp was included in the re-arguments that were about how to proceed with integrating the schools. And although the Washington, D.C. schools themselves did comply with the Supreme Court's decisions, as we've seen in so many other cases, white families started moving out of Washington, D.C., by the 1970s, there were really not very many white students left in the Washington, D.C. schools at all. More than 90 percent of the student body in Washington, D.C. was black. Many of the people who had been involved in these cases wound up having to flee the states where they lived for their own safety. Reverend J.A. Delane, the high school principal who helped bring the first suit in Briggs versus Elliott, fled the state for his safety after his house was shot into and then set on fire. Barbara Rose Johns, the Prince Edward County High School student who led the strike that launched protests about the conditions at the school for black students before Brown versus Board, fled the state of Virginia as well. We would really be remiss if we did not talk about some of the ways that the Brown versus Board legacy played out that were not strictly about the issue of school segregation. Even though it sparked a huge backlash, in black communities, Brown versus Board was overall met with a sense of joy and vindication. There was some debate about whether it was a good idea to force the issue, and there were definitely people who didn't want their children to have to attend school somewhere that they obviously were not wanted. But overall, the nation's highest court had, in a very public way, and in what felt to many people like the first time ever, 
found in favor of African-Americans equal rights. And that was cause for celebration. Although the civil rights movement was already underway when Brown versus Board reached the Supreme Court, the decision really helped propel the movement further as people built on the Supreme Court ruling in favor of equality to launch protests in other areas of life, such as desegregating lunch counters and buses and bus terminals and in protecting people's voting rights. Other monumental moments in the civil rights movement, including the Montgomery bus boycott, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins, and the Freedom Rides all have some roots in Brown versus Board. And so does civil rights legislation signed by Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1957 and Lyndon Johnson in 1964. So today, overwhelmingly, if you asked a typical person whether Brown versus Board was the right decision, overwhelmingly the answer would be yes, because school segregation was wrong and discriminatory. And the idea that at that point the Supreme Court would have uh, ruled in favor of discrimination, as it did in Plessy versus Ferguson, is abhorrent to a lot of people. But then when you look at the idea of constitutional law, it's a whole other matter. Brown versus Board did look at the question of how segregation related to the Constitution. When the case was re-argued, the 14th Amendment was a major focus. But ultimately, the idea of segregation as inherently discriminatory and damaging was a major, major part of the decision. And the decision had immediate direct applicability to the lives of an overwhelming proportion of the U.S. population. It materially changed the way most people lived. This set a new precedent in the world of the Supreme Court and civil rights. There were definitely major civil rights rulings before this and after this. But this is really the one that changed in a huge way and in a way that a lot of people at the time seriously objected to, uh, changed the way people lived. Um, which is why even though the decision itself at this point, most, most people are like, yes, obviously we should, we should have ended segregation. Yes. Uh, the precedent for what that meant in terms of other court cases and how much, like how big steps the court could take, uh, it was a starting point for a lot of debate about that. Do you also have a little bit of listener mail? I do. As with last time, our listener mail is both brief and kind of chipper because uh, this episode is a little bit on the longer side and also the material is uh, not the happiest material. So this is from Sophie. And Sophie says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I love your podcast, but I wanted to share a slightly disturbing experience I had while listening to your Six Impossible episodes. I was listening to the podcast on my iPod, and it was during the Robert the Haunted Doll section. You had just talked about how people often experience technical failures around Robert, and how a lot of people write him letters of apology for taking his picture without his permission. I'm a fairly skeptical person, so at that point, I was thinking that the whole story sounded like urban legend when my iPod, which had a full battery, suddenly and inexplicably died and restarted. I'm not saying I suddenly believe in ghosts, but I would like to apologize to Robert for listening to a podcast about him without his permission. (laughs) Uh, Sophie. Uh, And then Sophie says it would be awesome if we did an episode on the whaling ship Essex. And I think I responded to Sophie to say there is one in the archive. Hooray. Hooray. And don't mess with Robert the doll. That's what we know. Really? (laughs) Really don't. Uh, As I was working on that, episode, I was like, I don't really believe in all this thing with the doll being unlucky, but I had that tiny seed of doubt in the back of my mind. Of I am also a skeptical person, but I was getting ready to go on vacation, and I was like, 
what if my vacation is ruined because of Robert the doll? <laughs> so, you did not ask his permission to do that episode, lady. I did not. I'm sorry, Robert, for talking about you behind your back. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, you can. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store at MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com, which is full of t-shirts and phone cases and things like that. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, come to our parent company's website, that's HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Civil Rights Movement in the search bar, and you'll find how the Civil Rights Movement worked. If you would like to come to our website, you can find every episode we've ever done, including the whale ship Essex. And you can include, you can find show notes for everything Holly and I have worked on. Uh, you can also find a blog post about how to find old episodes you're interested in in the archive. So that you don't have to wait on Holly and me to potentially forget to answer your email. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 